Hey church, happy Father's Day. For the past five years, Father's Day for me has been exciting because I get to eat anything I want. It's a cheat day for me. I eat all the desserts I want. I get to choose the kind of meat to grill. Uh, it's an exciting day for me, and I'm looking forward to, to resting and relaxing, spending time with family, and also worshiping with you. I'm grateful for this day. I think it's important that we honor uh, the fathers, the dads in our lives, in the life of our church, in our community, in our country. And I want to say to you this, that being a father is critical to the life of your children, to your family, to your church, uh, to your country, and to this world. Because God has called you to be a leader who serves with humility and with courage, to be one that's willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And yet that calling extends not only to your family and your children, but to your church, to your city, to every arena that you find yourself in, you are to be a leader and you are to spiritually lead. And so I hope today that you feel honored, you feel celebrated, but for all of you men, feel charged to step into that role of spiritual leadership, of serving people, of sacrificing for yourself, of being humble and courageous as God has called you to be. Let today be a reminder of that because I know it is so easy to forget that, to kind of get busy and to forget about your calling as a father, as a man. You know, we are so easily moved by the, the culture we were raised in that can affect the way that we think about ourselves and we think about our role and our calling or the culture that maybe we've assimilated into that feels like it doesn't place the same value on our calling. It is so easy to lose focus with who God has called you to be and the role he's called you to step into. And I hope today is a reminder of who you are and who you're called to be. And our passage today is in Romans chapter 2. And this, this message here is a vital message for all of us. Men, women, fathers, mothers, everyone today needs to hear what God's word says to us because it is going to reveal something that I believe is so easy for us to fall into as a byproduct of maybe the culture we were raised in or the culture we've assimilated into. And that is that we can have this perspective, which is the title of the sermon. I'm okay, but they're not okay. It's really easy to think that way. I'm okay, but they're not okay. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addresses this very mentality. And so I, I pray that together we jump into God's word, that you know that there's an encouraging and a challenging word for you, but it's one that will bring transformation in your life for you fathers, for you mothers, for whatever calling God has placed upon your life, that you would see what the gospel says to who you are and how you are called to lead, to serve, to engage. Your God and his people in this city. And so let's jump in at Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 2, verse 1, which says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, 
every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So first you read this and you think to yourself, okay, who is Paul talking to? He's telling, he's speaking to people that are casting judgment on other people. And he's saying that you cannot judge other people because you are practicing the very same things that you are judging them for. So the two questions that jump out in verse 1, who is Paul talking to? What audience in the church? And what are these very same things they are practicing? Well, at the very end of Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lists a whole bunch of things that are practiced by those in the Roman world. These practices that those Gentile, non-Jewish believers would have been a part of, was a part of their culture, maybe was a part of their story before they came to faith in Christ. And he lists some of those out in the very end of chapter 1. And there are things like this. Idol worship, envy, murder, gossip, boasting, lacking empathy, sexual orgies, and so on. All of these things that are a byproduct, as we saw last week, of exchanging the truth of God for a lie, suppressing the truth, manufacturing idols in your life, all of these things have come with it, these type of practices. So Paul is calling out a group of people in the church that are judging people for those things, but are also practicing them themselves. So who's he talking to? Remember we said at the very beginning of the series that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that's fractured. It's very diverse. It's full of Gentile, non-Jewish, Greek Christians who have come to faith in Christ from that culture of practicing those things. And then also Jewish believers. Those of a Jewish heritage raised in a very different way with very different standards that have also come to faith in Christ. And here, he is speaking to those Jewish Christians. The ones he knows are casting judgment on the Gentile Christians who come from a culture that accepted those practices. And they themselves surely are tempted by and most likely previously engaged in at least several of them. It's addressing the Jewish Christians casting judgment on the non-Jewish, Gentile Christians. You see, one thing is very true, and we all know this, and that is that you are a product of your culture. Every one of us is a product of our culture. The food we eat, the priorities we have, the definition of success. We are all a product of our culture, both our family culture, our cultural heritage, the city or the country that we are raised in, we are a product of our culture. And one of the things that's interesting is that you, rev- you kind of begin to understand that even on a deeper way when you come to faith in Christ. See, when you come to faith in Christ, you surrender your life to Jesus, you receive the forgiveness of God, God's grace over your life, you realize that you are made new. You have new life. And with that new life comes new temptations. Why? Because you realize 
that some of the things that you used to practice, some of the patterns you used to follow in your life before Christ are exceptions to God's law. That your culture said they were acceptable, the way that you were raised, the place that you were in, said it was okay, it was good, you engaged in them, now you've come to faith in Christ, and now you realize those things are no longer good, those things are destructive, they are wrong, and now you're tempted by those things. See, your temptations are connected to your culture that has exceptions to God's law. Here's God's law. Every culture has different exceptions it takes with God's law. It says, no, these things are good. These things are okay. And when you come to faith in Christ, you begin to build and experience new temptations with those old exceptions. And this is exactly what is happening in this Roman church. Those Gentile Christians came from that culture practicing those things. And so now they have new temptations. Certainly temptations with sex and romance. Certainly temptations with trying to decipher truth. Remember, they come from a culture that not only took exceptions with sex, as we read about sexual orgies and all of the like, but they also come from a culture where you could chart your own spiritual path. They had different kind of gods that you could worship. You could essentially form your own truth. Chart your own course to discover your own truth. And so they were also easily susceptible to either disregarding some truth or being manipulated by others who were masquerading as spiritually mature and were telling them that what they were saying was true when it was in fact a lie. And this is exactly what's happening. Those Jewish Christians, who those Gentile Christians probably saw as more spiritually mature, They've been reading God's law and following God's word. Their entire life, that's their culture. And they have been placing upon them extra rules, judgment. They were susceptible to that. And those Jewish Christians were also a byproduct of their culture. You see, their culture took exception to God's law by taking it into their own hands and saying, no, no, we're going to add more rules extra layers of protection so you don't break God's law. It's all about obedience. It's all about being very religious. So they placed this heavy burden on people. And it was very hard for those Jewish Christians to leave that. Their temptation was moralism. That was their temptation. And Paul addresses this at the very end of Romans chapter 2 when he speaks about circumcision, which those Jewish Christians would have hit right home. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, of God's blessings, him setting apart his people. And the Apostle Paul says, what good is circumcision if you are a breaker of God's law? You see, the whole point of circumcision is to mark you as a covenant child, as a a person that is in God's family, but you're still called to be a keeper of the covenant. And when you break God's law, you break God's covenant. Apostle Paul says, what good is circumcision if you've broken God's law? See, what it reveals to you is that you need forgiveness. That's why the Jewish Christians would have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, every year. Forgiveness for their sins. That's why they're waiting for a Savior. 
See, those Jewish Christians should have understood that. Yeah, circumcision is nothing because you're a breaker of God's law. It only reveals your need for a Savior. Except for they were so tempted by moralism that they started to cast judgment. They forgot that they themselves are also lawbreakers, just like those Gentile Christians who struggle with different things. So the Apostle Paul knows that this letter is going to be read out loud to the church. That was the common practice. They would receive a letter from an, an apostle, and so they get this letter from the Apostle Paul, and they would have read it out loud. So I can imagine how this is going. Romans chapter 1, as we spent the last two weeks in, is being read. And those Jewish Christians, I mean, they're, they're loving Romans chapter 1. They're like, come on, Paul. You're calling out the Gentiles and all of their awful practices. Yeah, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Yes, they worship idols. Yes, they suppress the truth. Come on, Paul, preach it. Preach it. They're loving it. Clapping, sneering, looking at each other like, did you hear that one? They had to have loved Romans chapter 1, verse 32, which ends the chapter like this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They're like, come on, Paul. We love it. We love it. And then Paul, Romans chapter 2, the very next verse, he looks at them and he calls them to the ring. It's time to box. It's time to spar. He says this, as we already read, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in your passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And I can hear it now. That's read. They're like, okay, hold on, hold on, stop the letter. What is he saying? We don't practice those things. We are good, Bible-believing, obedient people. We are people of repentance, but our repentance is not from those awful things. We don't do those things. We are spiritually mature. We are morally sound. We are focused on obedience. We don't. How could you say that we practice those things, Paul? You don't know who we are. We would never do something like that. See, Paul knew as he read Romans chapter 1, they would not be thinking about themselves because their temptation was moralism. They always think too highly of themselves. They would be thinking about their brothers and sisters, those Gentiles, non-Jews. Maybe, yeah, yeah, you guys are the ones that suppress the truth. Yeah, you're the ones that have idols, not looking at themselves. And he's calling them to account. He develops this in verse 17 through 20. Where he says this, but if you call yourself a Jew, now you know he's speaking to them, and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And they're like, yes, we're back on track, Paul. Thank you. We're, we're, here we go. That's who we are. We're a guide to the blind. We're a teacher of children. 
We're the embodiment of knowledge and the keepers of the law. Back on track, Paul. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, listen to this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Apostle Paul says, listen, you don't practice what you preach. You preach against stealing, you steal. You preach against committing adultery, you've committed adultery. Talk about how bad idols are and idol worship, you rob temples. You boast in the law that you are keepers of the law and how righteous and obedient you are, and yet you are actually breakers of the law. In fact, that very culture that you look down upon, they blaspheme God because of you. The Apostle Paul is saying this, you are a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Calling them to account. You think to yourself, how does he know this? See, the Apostle Paul to this point has never been to Rome. He has not met them. How does he know that this is what's happening in the life of the church? Does he have a private investigator that's in Rome sending him reports, following these Jewish Christians at night when they're sneaking out to go rob temples? How does he know? He knows the human heart. He knows the human heart, and he knows his very own people and the way that they will think and their temptation towards moralism. As I mentioned last week, John Calvin said the human heart is, an, is a factory of idols. Our hearts, all of us, manufacture idols. Therefore, when we pass judgment, when we pass judgment on someone else for their struggles and temptations, we are hypocrites. When we pass judgment on anyone for their struggles and temptations, we are hypocrites. When you judge, you're a hypocrite. When you gossip, you're a hypocrite. When you sneer and roll your eyes at someone else, you're a hypocrite. Why? Because you have idols too. You have struggles too. You have temptations too. They may not be the same, but you have them. You are a breaker of the law just the same. And that is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get out through these Jewish Christians for them to understand. You may not have the same struggles. You were raised in different cultures. But you have struggles. And yours is moralism. And in fact, though you may not steal from the marketplace... Have you not stolen possibly someone's dignity, someone's opportunity? Maybe you've never committed adultery in the way that you define it, but have you looked at somebody else with lust in your heart? Maybe you don't have a wooden statue in your house, an actual physical idol. 
But have you stolen praise from God to fill your own pockets? To fill your own ego? You are a breaker of God's law. In fact, your religiosity, your moralism is so destructive that you are pushing away an entire people group from God. The Gentiles. Those very people in your city that you are judging, you are pushing farther and farther from God. The Apostle Paul is really pulling here from Jesus' sermon, the most famous sermon in the world, the Sermon on the Mount, where he speaks about the law of God. And, And essentially, Jesus says that the law of God is wider and deeper and more crushing than Ten Commandments. Jesus says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder But I tell you that anyone who harbors anger in his heart has murdered his brother. Jesus speaks about adultery and says adultery isn't just the act of cheating on your spouse. It is also to look at somebody with lust in your heart. See, why does Jesus make the law more crushing? Because he's revealing that the intention of the law, which is to make you realize that you are a breaker of the law and that you need forgiveness and that you need a Savior, and that you should not judge, that would make you a hypocrite. He actually says this near the end of his sermon. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or have or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, the Apostle Paul's teaching here to these Jewish Christians struggling with moralism is coming right out of Jesus' words. The Sermon on the Mount. He is calling out the failure of religiosity and moralism both in the life of the individual, the effect it's having on the church, the effect it's having on a culture, on a city, on the world. That it is destructive That instead of clapping and sneering and judging when Romans 1 was being read, those Jewish Christians should have thought, wow, how do I suppress the truth? It may look different because I was raised in a different culture and I have different temptations, but how have I exchanged the truth of God for a lie? What idols has my heart manufactured? But they ignored the log, the log of moralism in their eye and focus on the specks of their brothers and sisters in Christ that struggled with different things. And it affected not only their heart and their church, pushed away a whole group of people. Wow. See, religiosity and moralism is destructive not only to the individual, but to the society itself. The 1990s, There was a book written by a woman named Wendy Kaminer. 
and she critiques this blossoming self-help culture that was really starting to build here in America and in the West. She writes this book, and she speaks about what she finds taking place and really the root of what's happening in our culture and this attraction to self-help. She says this, how in the world can you say that this is mental health to say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Yet out there in the world, there is all the blood of the innocent crying out from the ground for justice. There's genocide. There's terrorism. There's all this awful stuff. We're all okay. That's silly. That's narcissism. See, she identifies that what's happening in the culture is this attraction to narcissism, this feeding of those narcissistic tendencies of our heart. Say, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, let's just accept everything. Just focus on ourselves. So she calls it out, she critiques it. Ten years later, she writes another book because she sees how this has developed, how people have responded to her book and to other sources that are calling out the narcissism of the self-help culture. And she notices that things are changing. That people are identifying that we're not all okay. There are actual real problems in the world. There's real evil in the world. And there, there needs to be solutions to bring justice, peace. But she sees a new song being sung by civilization, by the human heart. She says it goes like this. I'm okay. I'm okay. But the rest of you are not okay. It used to be, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, but what has been developed is, I'm okay. The rest of you are not okay. And what have we discovered in the past year, two years? What have we experienced? We've experienced moralism birthed out of narcissism that has run rampant in our culture. This belief that I'm okay, but you're not okay. I'm going to judge you because I believe myself to be superior. I'm on the side of the good guys. I'm right. What do we see politically? I'm okay, and everybody on my side is okay, but the rest of you on the other side, you're not okay. Relationships. I'm okay, and this relationship didn't work because they're not okay. I mean, the whole dating app culture online produces that. You're swiping around, and you're like, they're not okay, they're not okay, possibly okay, let's see the personality, they're not okay. Professionally, I'm okay. The problem of my job is the management, they're not okay. I'm okay. The problem is a toxic culture created by my coworkers. They're not okay. We see this everywhere. In parenting, I'm okay. The issue with the kids is the schooling system. They're not okay. The issue with the kids, their friends and the peer pressure, that's not okay. But I'm okay. 
spiritually. I'm okay. The church isn't okay. I'm okay. The pastor isn't okay. I'm okay. There's not enough programs for what I need, and that's not okay. Or that person's theology is not okay. Or what they think is not okay. But I'm okay. This is what we have found, and this is what we see. Moralism run rampant. It is everywhere. And guess what? It's in you and me too. It's in every one of us. We hold people to standards that we ourselves do not want to be held to. We judge people and hold people to standards that we don't want levied against us. If we heard somebody was judging us based upon a standard that we think is unfair, we would be angry, but yet we do the very same thing to other people. In fact, most of the time, we judge people and we slander people, we gossip about people that struggle with things that we don't struggle with, or at least we believe we don't struggle with. Because I'm okay. I, I mean, this department and this issue and this struggle, I'm okay, but they're not. So let's talk about them. We do it all the time. It's naive and it's ignorant. Because one, you're not, you're not identifying the log in your own eye, the own, your own issues, your own struggles and failures at resisting temptation. And in the future, you may very well struggle with that very temptation that you are judging somebody else for. We all know this because growing up, how many times did you think to yourself, my parents are unfair, they're disconnected, they don't get it, they're just mean because of the decisions that they've made or the consequences they've levied. They're disconnected, they're unfair, they're mean. You grow up in time and some of those decisions, not all, but some of those decisions and some of the consequences that you had, you realize were good. And you'll do the same thing if you have kids. Why? Because it created character within you. It was actually helpful for your growth and maturity. But at the time, you thought, I'm okay. My parents are not okay. Moralism is everywhere, and it's in us too. The truth is this. I'm not okay. You're not okay. We're not okay. All of us need Jesus. That's the truth. Regardless of the culture that you've been raised in, regardless of your temptations, your struggles, your failures, your successes, none of us are okay. We all need Jesus. And the gospel message of Jesus leaves you to only have that position. That's the only position you can have. None of us are okay. Because if you've spent any time reading God's word and you read God's law, you know I've failed God's standard time and time again. I'm not okay. And even if someone has never read God's word or they're new to it and they don't know that they're failing God's standard, they also know they're not okay. The Apostle Paul says that here in verse 14 through 16. Look what he says. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, 
when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Francis Schaeffer, a pastor, says that this is like arriving, the Apostle Paul is saying, it's like arriving to Jesus, standing before him and saying, listen, you can't judge me because I, I never really read your law. Like, I never read the Bible. I didn't know that I was breaking your standard, God. And then Jesus reaches around your back and he reveals that you've had a secret recorder attached to you your entire life. And he pushes play and he says, fine, we will judge you by your standard. The standard that you have levied on other people. Have you met your standard? Have you upheld your standard that you've placed on others or put on yourself? And the answer for each and every one of us is no. None of us are okay. We have all failed. But listen, though that that is the only position we are invited to have, and and that is the true position that the gospel leads us to, is that we are not okay, it's not bad news. Because you aren't left there. When you realize that you're not okay, and then in faith you come to Christ, you look up and you realize that you are sitting right before the cross. And when you look up at the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus, the one who perfectly upheld the law that we have broken, hanging there, dying the death that you deserve. You see, Jesus was condemned and he was judged by the religious leaders who took the law into their own hands, who gave in to moralism and thought that they were doing the right thing. And then he was killed by a narcissistic ruler named Pilate who just wanted to maintain his own power and to keep the peace for his own ego. And Jesus dies on that cross for all of us that fall prey to narcissism, and moralism. He perfectly upheld the law and died the death that we deserve as lawbreakers. So when you realize you're not okay and you look up in faith to Jesus, you realize that you see the cross and that Jesus died for you and your narcissism and moralism. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, You arrive repenting of either narcissism or moralism, oftentimes both. Jesus, in one of his most famous stories ever delivered in Luke chapter 15, famously called the prodigal son, he speaks about a father who has two children. One of them, the younger, wants nothing to do with dad. He wants to take all of his money and his inheritance. He says, I'm out of here. He leaves. He goes into the far country, and he lives a wild life. He does whatever he wants. He is focused on himself. He is narcissistic to the core. But in time, he realizes he can't live that way. He squanders everything. He begins to struggle and to suffer. He's treated like less than the pigs. He has no choice but to come back to his father. There's also an elder brother that is there. He's always at home. He's close by the Father. He's working. He's performing. He's obedient. 
He's the perfect son, at least in his own eyes. And that younger son starts coming home thinking he's, I mean, hopefully dad doesn't kill me. Maybe he'll just make me a servant. And as he's walking home, his dad has actually been looking out for him, waiting for him to return. He sees his son coming down the road. He runs. He lets everything go. and He chases down his son. He hugs him. He kisses him. How shocked that younger son that was in that far country must have felt. And he says, listen, son, you're home. Let's go back. I got a a, a feast ready. I'm going to get the best steaks. We're going to have a party like you've never experienced because my son is home. That son is amazed, blown away by the grace of his father. Forgiveness he doesn't deserve. The older son comes in and he says, hey, dad, I got a problem here. My problem's with you. I've never had a party like this. You've never, you've never broken out the nicest steaks for me. I've been obedient. I've been doing the right thing this whole time. And the father says to him, my son, you missed it. Everything was always yours. It was right here. You were too busy focusing on performing for me. And you missed out on all of this that was right here. The younger son struggled with narcissism. And he receives exactly what he needs from his father. A lavish party and a celebration because he was disconnected from him, but now he's home and he receives grace. And the elder son, who struggled with moralism, receives exactly what he needs which is a challenge to his son to say, listen, you missed it. It was all right here before you. You were so busy performing for me that you missed the grace that was right here available at every step of the way and is available to you now too, son. You see, faith, when you come to Christ and you kneel before the cross and you bring your narcissism and you bring your moralism, it leads you to grace and embrace. It leads you to grace and embrace, to receive the grace of God. If you are far off, come home. Come home to God. He welcomes you. He's got a celebration for you. Forgiveness. And if you are close, if you are close, receive the grace of God by taking notice of what is already yours. Receive the grace of God and receive the embrace of God's love. If you're far off, leave behind your shame and run and embrace the love of God for you. And if you are close, receive the love of God for you and stop working for God and rest in the work that God has already done for you. Rest. See, we are not okay. But in Jesus, we are beautiful. We receive the grace of God, the embrace of God. And we are not to judge because God is the judge. And so whenever somebody wrongs you or somebody is making a poor choice, what is your response? Grace and embrace just like your God your Father gave to you. And listen, every time you make a bad choice, 
and you fail, and you struggle, you don't judge yourself because you've already been judged in Christ on the cross. You run back to God's grace and you receive His embrace that is always yours. Always yours. Whether your struggle and temptation is narcissism or moralism, God's grace and embrace is always yours. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we pray that we would rest in your grace and your embrace. That you would help us to identify those things that we struggle with. That we would deal honestly with our hearts. That we would look for how we suppress the truth, how we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the idols that we have, the temptations that we struggle with. God, it may be narcissism. It may be moralism. We may think, I'm okay, but those people aren't. Certainly there are people in our lives, God, that we have judged, spoken ill about because of what they struggle with. Convict our hearts so that we might run back to you to receive your grace, to embrace you, knowing that you love us, that we've already been judged on the cross. We don't deserve what we've received, but we rest in it. The good news of your gospel for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.